Welcome to Double Truck Stories, the home to some of the best features, investigations, and character portraits from across ESPN. I'm Mike Philbrick, your host for the Double Truck Stories podcast. Remember to subscribe to Double Truck Stories podcast on the ESPN app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Even though the Golden State Warriors are the two-time defending NBA champion, the league still moves at the speed of LeBron James. That truth was on full display as the clock struck midnight on July 1st and the courtship of the king began once again. But unlike when James famously took his talents to South Beach in 2010, this would have no pomp and circumstance. There was still the question of where to go. And where do you go when you've had a career that would have put you in the Hall of Fame even if you walked away years ago? There was no roadmap for this, but the Lakers and LeBron still managed to meet at the intersection of hope and legacy and turn the NBA world upside down with a one-word text to Lakers owner Jeannie Buss that simply read, Congratulations. Stick around after the story for my conversation with ESPN senior writer Ramona Shelburne as we talk about how the revival of Showtime became a reality. Now we present The Day LeBron Became a Laker, behind-the-scenes stories by Ramona Shelburne. How LeBron's Decision Instantly Changed the Lakers, Cavs, and NBA by Ramona Shelburne. She woke up at 4 a.m. on July 1st with nothing to do but wait for the sun to rise. With as much as Jeannie Buss and the Los Angeles Lakers had riding on this day, she was lucky to have fallen asleep at all the night before. In a few hours, the NBA would learn where LeBron James had decided to spend the next phase of his NBA career, and Buss's Lakers had emerged as the favorites to sign him. She'd seen her father, Dr. Jerry Buss, pull off landscape-altering trades and free agent coups like this before. But since his death in February 2013, it had been as dark for the Lakers as it was on that Manhattan Beach morning as she tossed and turned in bed. There was a feeling of confidence, Buss said, but I'd been there before, so I wasn't going to allow myself to take anything for granted. All she knew at that point was that Magic Johnson had met with James at his house right as free agency began the night before. She didn't know how it had gone or what had been said. No, she'd spent the night of June 30th watching the first few hours of free agency unfold on ESPN's The Jump special, just like a regular fan. And it didn't go well for the Lakers at all, as Paul George announced he was staying in Oklahoma City without even meeting with other teams, let alone his hometown Lakers. Just like that, one of the Lakers' top free agent targets was off the board, and this was starting like the past five unfulfilling summers. Buss had fired her brother Jim Buss as president of basketball operations and longtime general manager Mitch Kupchak in February 2017, replacing them with Johnson and Rob Polinka to help change what had become a losing culture. Her dad had taught her many lessons in the years he'd groomed her to run the Lakers, but perhaps most important was that Lakers fans expect their team to have superstars and contend for championships year after year. Anything less, and they go elsewhere for their entertainment. This is Hollywood. There are plenty of other shows in town. Jeannie Buss felt that angst personally the past five years. The Lakers had never missed the playoffs more than two years in a row in the 34 years her father owned the team. Since his death, They'd been shut out of the postseason five seasons in a row and seen the last link to their glory years, Kobe Bryant, retire. Lakers fans might have been spoiled by all the prosperity, but that's hardly the kind of trait the Buss family wanted to soften. No, it needed to produce another hit as soon as possible. Yeah, there was no pushback from me, because I knew there was no way to argue that we weren't at the bottom of the standings, Jeannie Buss said. We were. The numbers showed that as fact. 
All she could do as the Lakers CEO was try to fix it, change the culture, give the franchise a facelift, then get two of the biggest Lakers stars of the past four decades, Magic and Kobe, to help recruit the best player of his era, LeBron James. The term recruit is a relative one in this case, though. Stars of James's magnitude tell you what they're going to do and what you're going to do to help them do it. There is no wooing or bargaining or leveraging. There is only proving that you are worthy of James's trust, then accepting whatever terms he gives. When he retires one day, James's embrace of his own power will be one of his most impactful legacies. Few players have controlled their own destinies as sagaciously as James has throughout the latter half of his career. Moving to L.A., where the locals not only understand but also expect such power moves from their stars, made sense. Accepting James's terms and waiting for him to decide are two different things, however. By the morning of July 1st, all the people waiting on James's decision found themselves suspended in a state of anxious excitement or dread, knowing their lives were about to change. Everything about James's free agency felt different this time around. There was no televised special. There were no pitch meetings. There was no dramatic week in which the rest of the league essentially stopped doing business and waited on James's decision. He didn't want any of that this time. Nor did he need it. At age 33, with three championships and 15 seasons in the NBA on his resume, James knew the league and his suitors better than anyone. He also knew his place in the game and the ramifications of this choice on his legacy. So when he met with his agent, Rich Paul, and other close advisors a few days before going on vacation with his family to Anguilla at the end of June, the priorities were clear. There would be no profiting off this free agent decision, no documentary, no tie-in with James's myriad business interests, and no celebratory party or news conference. James wanted to decide quickly this time, knowing how his situation affected the rest of the league. Then he wanted to be with his family, first on a vacation to Italy, and then as much as he could all summer long, because after eight straight trips to the NBA Finals, he has grown protective of this small oasis of quality downtime before everything starts up again. But mostly, everything felt different this time around because James had delivered on his promise to bring a championship to Cleveland. And this last season, damn, he'd done more than anyone thought possible. He did it at the highest level you can probably ever do it, Cavs coach Tyron Lue said. It was arguably his best season ever. Lou was in the High Limit Lounge at the Aria Hotel in Las Vegas when James announced that he'd chosen to sign a four-year, $153.3 million deal with the Lakers. It was quiet in the lounge at that time on a Sunday evening. Ironically, it was a good spot to get away from the high-stakes game Lou and the Cavaliers had just lost. But while Lou had known this was a possibility, it took a while for it to feel real. It's tough because he meant so much to me as a coach, especially our players in the organization and the city of Cleveland, Lou said. But he's the one guy that throughout the whole course of his career came in with the most pressure and the most scrutiny. Nobody else has done that. And from day one, he never cracked. He continued to get better and better and do so much for the city of Cleveland and the league. So I'm just glad that he had an opportunity to do what he wants, to enjoy it his family, and the rest of his career. Lou stayed in contact with James after the finals ended, which was not unusual. During the season, Lou and James texted constantly about the team or how James was feeling as he averaged 38 minutes per game over the 104 games the Cavs played. Sometimes it was five to six times a week. Sometimes five to six times a day, Lou said. 
This off-season, he wanted to stay in touch, but not in a way that would make James think he had an agenda or was trying to influence him to stay. No, I wasn't recruiting. Rich Paul made it clear that with Cleveland, we don't have to do any of that. James knows exactly what we do and what we bring, so just to let him make the decision about his happiness and where he's at in his career, Lou said. I wanted to make sure I respected that. It was much the same position in which Dwayne Wade found himself in 2014 when James was deciding whether to leave the Miami Heat and return to Cleveland. They were friends more than teammates at that point. Even though Wade had ample opportunity as they hung out in Las Vegas in the days before James had to decide, and flew back to Miami together on a private plane the night before James's letter in Sports Illustrated announcing his return to Cleveland posted, Wade never crossed that line. I never once said, come back, Wade said a few years later. Not once. Once I knew he made up his mind, I said, it was fun, wasn't it? Now go do what it is LeBron wants to do. I'll support you either way. Not a lot of people could have done that, but my life wasn't made off what LeBron could do for me. I just appreciated our friendship. Everything else is a bonus. Because of their friendship, Lou was probably the most optimistic of anyone in the Cavaliers organization that James would stay in Cleveland. Each time he'd talk or text with James after the season, it felt normal, like maybe nothing would change and they'd be back in training camp this fall, trying to do it all over again. The rest of the city and the franchise seemed to be bracing for James to leave, though. Fans at Quicken Loans Arena even gave him a standing ovation as he came out of the game for the last time at the end of Game 4 of the NBA Finals' loss to the Golden State Warriors. What had been anger and resentment in 2010 had turned to sadness and nostalgia by 2018. As columnist Marla Reidenauer wrote in the Akron Beacon Journal on July 2nd, I thought my heart was protected. I thought I was prepared for LeBron James to leave Cleveland again. As James heads to the Los Angeles Lakers, I was overcome by the feeling that the most awe-inspiring moments I have witnessed in my 41-year career might be behind me. Cavaliers general manager Kobe Altman spent the weeks after the finals trying to swing deals to improve the team and convince James to stay. But he communicated only with Paul during those critical weeks and was never given any assurances or instructions on what moves might persuade James to stay. It was similar to the way James behaved when he left Miami four years earlier. Very little contact, no instructions or assurances, just an open line of communication to Paul. Heat President Pat Riley had grown so uncomfortable with the distance that he went to James's trainer's wedding in hopes of stealing a short conversation with James. But they never connected that day and never met face-to-face until James was ready to do so on his terms, after he'd met with Cavaliers owner Dan Gilbert and set his homecoming in motion. If there were lessons to draw from James's previous free agencies, this was among the most important. He will do things on his terms, not anyone else's. The people who understand that and can respect his style are the ones James will ultimately choose to keep in his life. Both the Cavs and the Lakers seem to get that this time, and both will stay in James's life, just not the way Cleveland hoped from a basketball perspective. It's just so different from the last time, Altman said. He still cares about us. I really do believe that. He had really heartfelt feelings for us, and I genuinely believe he was torn. I really do and he made a decision that he thought would make him and his family happy. Altman was at home in Cleveland when Paul called to let him know James had chosen the Lakers, 
It was after 8 p.m. Eastern, and Altman had a massive rebuilding job ahead of him. So he got on the phone and called his staff and all the Cavaliers' returning players while the hurt and emotion washed over him. Could they have gotten more in the trade for Kyrie Irving last summer? Should they have done whatever it took to land Paul George from Indiana, regardless of whether James was willing to commit long-term? You go back and you always scrutinize everything you do as a general manager. That's why we don't effing sleep at night, Altman said. But I don't think this was anything we did right or wrong. This is what he wanted to do for him, as a personal preference or a family decision. And I'm okay with that. I have to be okay with that. The next morning, Altman got a call from the only person in the world who knew exactly how he was feeling in that moment, Miami Heat general manager Andy Ellisberg. I called him and said, Well, did the sun come up this morning? Ellisberg said. And he said, Yes, it came up. And I said, Well, I just want to let you know, it's going to come up tomorrow, too. Four years ago, Ellisberg and the Heat had the wind knocked out of them by James's decision to go back to Cleveland. Like the Cavs, they'd known it was a possibility at some point. They just never thought it would come as soon as it did, after only four seasons, in all of which the team went to the NBA Finals. There are parallels in their shared experiences, but there are also important differences. James got what he needed from both franchises in the time he was there. In Miami, he learned how to win championships and take control of his destiny. In Cleveland these past four years, he fulfilled that destiny. But when he left Miami, his path forward was clear. His reasons for leaving were clear, which ultimately helped Ellisberg process the departure. This time around, everyone has to trust James when he says going to Los Angeles is what will make him and his family happy. The night it happened, in 2014, I was so angry and emotional I was having chest pains, Ellisberg said. I was lying in bed and thought I was having a heart attack. He spent that day trying to salvage what was left of the Heat's roster, convincing Chris Bosh and Dwayne Wade to stay, and setting meetings with other free agents to help fill the void left by James's departure. When it first happened, it was like the scene in Jerry Maguire, when suddenly all the clients are leaving, he joked. But once the rush was over, the pain set in. He couldn't sleep if he tried. So he got in his car and drove two hours north, past Boca Raton and Palm Beach, until he started to find a bit of peace. I got clarity about four or five o'clock in the morning. It wasn't about us. It was about what he wanted to do, Ellisberg said. Fast forward to July 2018, and it was time to relay the story and the wisdom to Altman. I came in the next day around nine, ten o'clock in the morning, went to the whiteboard, started putting down names and building the roster like we'd always done. Ellisberg told the young general manager, you have to realize it always ends. It never ends the way you want it to end, but it ends and you have to start again. But no matter what, it was an incredible four years. You won a championship, you know? Nothing takes that away. Altman listened and tried to absorb the lesson, knowing it'll mean more to him in the months and years ahead. He said he wouldn't have given up his four years with him for the world, and I feel the same way, Altman said. To have four years of the finals under my belt and the experience of working with the best player maybe ever, it's incredible. So now it's the Lakers' turn. And while this certainly feels familiar to a franchise with 16 NBA championship banners and 12 jerseys hanging from its rafters, there's something about what lies ahead with James that feels both exciting and scary. This wasn't a perfect basketball fit, and James came anyway. The Lakers' best players are still in their early 20s, 
George didn't come with him. The price for Kawhi Leonard was too high to trade for him under duress. Yet James decided to join them. Once he said yes, the Lakers weren't about to ask why. Their challenge now is to live up to that faith. James and Johnson have long been compared to each other. Two Midwestern boys with charisma oozing from every pore, outsized expectations as they entered the league, and otherworldly talent. Johnson made the Lakers in L.A. when Jerry Buss drafted him number one overall out of Michigan State in 1979, Buss's first year owning the team. At six foot nine, with a megawatt smile and flashy skills, Johnson created and embodied the Showtime era Lakers, then transitioned into a successful business career and social activism after he retired. It's a model the six foot eight James has followed on and off the court during his 15 years under the hottest of spotlights. But he has never formed a partnership with an owner like Johnson did with Buss. James's closest bonds are with his family, friends in the league, and long-term business partners such as Paul, Maverick Carter, and Randy Mims. But if a partnership in L.A. was going to be a fruitful one, James knew he and Johnson had to meet in person and discover whether they shared a basketball vision as well as a basketball story. Discretion was of the utmost importance. Only a few people in the organization, Jeannie Buss, Palinka, and Johnson, knew Johnson was going to meet with James on the first night of free agency. Keeping the meeting quiet was seen by the Lakers as something of a loyalty test for James, the same way it was for James's inner circle. If he couldn't trust them with that, how could he trust them with his career? We were not going to jeopardize any of our position for any mistake or overreach, Buss said. All that was left for Jeannie Buss to do was wait and trust in the two men she'd put in place last year. Magic and Rob, they really prepared and did their homework, where I think maybe the previous regime was a little bit more roll the dice and then react, she said. We had our best case scenario, but there was a plan B and a plan C and a plan D and E. Nothing was really up to chance other than the player's decision. It's up to James to decide, but we'd done everything that we could. She had been in pitch meetings before that didn't feel that way. We'd gone into a free agency period with no coach, she said. How are you going to convince somebody to come if you don't know who the coach is going to be? And they, the previous regime, were like, well, they'll have feedback into who the coach would be. I'm like, what if you can't get the one that they want? I didn't understand or like that process. Buzz has spent the past 18 months trying to remake the Lakers in her vision instead of trying to make sense of somebody else's. If it didn't work, she could live with it. Of course, that didn't make it easier to fall back asleep the morning of July 1st as James made the choice that would either validate the Lakers' new course or send them back to the whiteboard. I had friends in town and was hanging with them, Buzz said, but I must have been staring at my phone the entire time. Finally, a few minutes after 5 p.m., she got a one-word text from Paul. Congratulations. I'll never forget that moment as long as I live, she said. This would make my dad really happy. This is something that he would want to accomplish. Lakers coach Luke Walton had started thinking about what it would be like to coach James a few weeks earlier as he prepared for his role in a pitch meeting should James grant one to the Lakers. For the past two years, he'd been in an entirely different mode, grooming the Lakers' young players to establish a winning culture and habits. It had been arduous, unglamorous work at times. But over the past year, Walton had come to enjoy the breakthrough moments when progress becomes obvious, not theoretical. If he got to pitch James, he'd tell him about the things he believed in as a coach and hope James appreciated them. 
He prepared a package of plays and concepts in case James asked for that level of detail, but he had no expectation of giving it to him. It's like, F, LeBron doesn't want to sit there and listen to, here's what we can do with you, Walton said. No, this was about confidence and vision, not X's and O's. Walton could relate to the decision James was about to make. Two years earlier, he'd left as associate head coach of the Warriors in the midst of their dynastic run to rebuild the Lakers. He went in with eyes wide open, knowing how high expectations were, despite a bare talent cupboard and a dysfunctional management situation. Yet for some reason, he had faith it would turn around, that he could help turn it around. I've always loved the family atmosphere of sports, and from high school to college, and as a player in L.A. for eight years, he said. We won championships together, and it was just this incredible journey that really molded my basketball mind. When I saw the Lakers struggling, even when I'm coaching in Golden State, I see them losing, and I'm still pulling for them to win. So to have an opportunity to help bring them back, the team that pretty much raised me in the NBA, you have to love and embrace that challenge. Walton was going to tell James that story when he got the chance. But Johnson was the only Lakers official who met with James before he made his decision to join the team. Walton found out the morning of July 1st that James and Johnson had met for several hours the night before, and it had gone well. He didn't ask any more questions, knowing how important secrecy and discretion had become. He has since exchanged text messages with James and made plans to meet in person soon. I had just gotten back from the office. It was a beautiful Manhattan Beach day, and we had just opened up the pool cover and were getting ready to have a nice Sunday barbecue with a couple friends, Walton said. We had cornhole being played in the backyard. Then his phone started dinging. LeBron had chosen the Lakers. I think I spent the next eight and a half hours on the phone. Missed my whole Sunday family barbecue, he said with a laugh. Missed the cornhole. The kids were already asleep by the time I got done taking calls. Once it was finally quiet, Walton could reflect on what had just happened and how it would change his life and the team he'd been working to restore to its former glory. There were hundreds of texts and voicemails on his phone for him to answer later. Kobe Bryant would tell him that the key to coaching James is to be willing to listen and work with him, but also, as Phil Jackson had done with Bryant, to know what's really important to you as a coach and stick to it. Miami Heat coach Eric Spolstra would tell him that James is going to want to know why the team is doing something, and the key to coaching him is to always keep that discussion open. He said, First of all, you're getting a different LeBron, Walton said of the conversation with Spolstra. We, the Heat, got him eight years ago when he hadn't won a championship. But he's like, dude, he works extremely hard. He's so knowledgeable about the game. You gotta always be honest and prepared and ready to work hard. As long as you do those things, the relationship should be fine. Luke's father, Bill Walton, would call him from a Grateful Dead concert to help celebrate. Yeah, and he had drummer Mickey Hart in the background yelling at me that the rhythm is the answer to everything in life, Luke Walton said with a laugh. So once I figure out what that means, we'll be good. Deep down, Walton already knew what was coming and how things were about to change. His rookie year with the Lakers was the year Carl Malone and Gary Payton came to L.A. to try to win a title with Shaquille O'Neal and Bryant. He had lived through the rise and fall of that team, the breakup with O'Neal that came next, and a summer of Bryant's trade demands. He had also won championships as a Laker and knew that all that drama could be worth it in the end. It's going to be completely nuts, but it's also going to be awesome, Walton said. The whole city is going to be behind us. We're going to be on Sports Center every night. 
If we lose, it's going to be the end of the world. If we win, it's going to be wild. But no matter what, it's going to be fun. And so, Walton went outside and sat by the pool while the rest of his family slept. It was finally quiet enough for him to think. I sat under the stars and said to myself, Damn, we got LeBron James on our team, he said. The best player in the world is a Laker. Joining me now is ESPN senior writer Ramona Shelburne. Ramona, thank you again and welcome. How are you, Mike? Fantastic. Excellent story. Very well reported as always. I always a big fan of, I always love these behind the scenes, how it happened, the stuff you didn't know. I love these stories. You did a great job with it. Thank you. I like writing those because it's, you know, there's a, one of the things that was obvious when it came to this story was that you weren't going to get much, if at all, straight from LeBron, right? Like he's going to mm-hmm. talk to you, to the world and let us know what was in his head when he damn well pleases. Exactly. <laughs> right. And a status he is he's earned. not doing the press. He's not doing a press conference. His first public appearance is going to be July 30th in Akron when he opens his school there. Mm-hmm. He's not doing a parade here. There's not going to be a disco party like there was in Miami when he's not five, not six, not seven. Championships. <laughs> None of that. Um, he's going to do what he wants to do this summer. And by all indications, the only thing he's going to do publicly is going to be training camp He'll do a press conference like he'll 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 talk to the media when he's damn well ready. And I think there's something that's like kind of I kind of respect it. Like that's very sure. like mogul. Right. Like you don't get to talk to me when you want to talk to me. Right. You get to talk to me when I want to talk to you. And it's kind of the way he went about the whole process. Like it's very um, I don't even think there was a negotiation on the contract. I think the Lakers would have signed him for one year or two years or three years or four. It was up to mm-hmm. him. They were just, you know, you're coming. Okay. How long? What's the deal? Okay, cool. Done. <laughs> like it wasn't, there wasn't a negotiation. There's no such thing with him anymore. It's you wait for LeBron to tell you what he's going to do and how you're going to help him do it. Quite the status. Now this transition though, with the Lakers actually from, you know, Kobe Bryant's titles to Kobe Bryant's sort of expensive farewell tour to the present, like, how difficult has this been for Jeannie Buss to navigate? And do you think she's getting the credit Ooh. that she deserves? And I say that because the Celtics are getting there. And uh, they got very fortunate with what they were able to do in 2008 and such. But the Bulls are, I mean, you compare like, oh, look at Michael Jordan. The Bulls are not back at all sure. or anywhere close. But I feel that, and no one's saying anything about Jerry Reinsdorf, but then you've got, look what, I mean, Jeannie Buss, inherited an unbelievable legacy from her father and how she's been able to navigate this. I mean, I personally think she's not getting the credit for it, but how do you think she has been able to uh, navigate this? Yeah, well, I think that's that's the right way of looking at it, right? There's some legacy franchises in the NBA where, you know, I, I, I guess I would say the, the Bulls, the Knicks, the Celtics, the Lakers, um, maybe the Sixers, um, kind of up there in terms of stature uh, in, mm-hmm. in league history. Um, who else would you put in that category? I mean, I guess at this point, maybe even the Warriors, but that's just recent history. Um, and the Spurs, like those, those are the teams that are sort of seen as legacy franchises, but really the two, the the two real legacy franchises are the Lakers and the Celtics. Mm -hmm. And they're the ones with the most banners. Um, and you know, even one of the, one of the things that as somebody who covers 
the, the Lakers pretty closely and have throughout my career. One of the most amazing stats that you would consistently hear repeated was the Lakers have never missed the playoffs more than two years in a row mm-hmm. since Dr. Jerry Buss earned, owned the team. So he bought the team in 1979. He owned them for 34 years before he died in 2013. And they never missed the playoffs more than two years in a row. That's incredible. I mean, there's no, uh, you know, and, and you, so you talk about droughts, like, you know, they've had, you know, periods of time where they weren't great. I mean, especially at least in my personal experience, I remember, at, you know, at the end of Showtime, there was a little, a little run there where there was, you know, Spinale 3, Nick Van Exel. Right? I was going to say Nick Van Exel's jersey is not hanging yeah. from the rafters. Right. There was a little, there was a little trough there, but they still were in the playoffs. They were still relevant. Mm-hmm. Um, the probably right after Magic Johnson retired is, is probably the most, um, you know, the, the, the time in Laker history where it was like, Oh, what are they going to do next? But they still had some good players back then. It was, you know, he it was right in the midst of a, a good run of players there. So the Laker fans in a lot of ways are spoiled. Mm-hmm. Like they've never had the reality that the rest of the NBA has had, which is, Generally, right after a big boom time, you have a, a valley, right? Because you 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 win, you live for today. You 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 make decisions that are short term minded because you're trying right. to win now, and then you pay the price for it when it when it's all over. And there's a three to four to five year period where you're rebuilding. That's the standard life cycle in the NBA. The mm-hmm. Lakers have just been immune to that because either they got a free agent, they made a big trade, something the you know, fortune smiled upon them. Um, and, the, and so now, not only have the last five years been this downtime, it coincided with when Jeannie Buss took over for her dad as the controlling owner of the Lakers. So, one, she has this responsibility to uphold the Laker tradition and legacy. Um, but two, there's this mounting pressure year after year after year. The Lakers have never missed the playoffs more than two years in a row. Well, they've missed it five years in a row right now. And they were, they were a lottery team. You know, not just a lottery team, they were a top five lottery team, like really bad um, in, in three of those years. Actually, and, and the other year was the seventh pick with Julius Randles. They were just as bad. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, Jeannie felt that. And, you know, you, she'd go on Twitter and people are, you know, begging her. And she's always at games so she sees people in person. And, I, you know, she's out and around town where you know, celebrities are giving away tickets. They don't even, nobody even wants to go to the games anymore. I mean, that's, mm-hmm. that's a lot. And it'd be a lot whether her dad was alive or not, but because this was right after he died, there was so much pressure on her. And I think over the last 18 months, what she's done in firing her brother and Mitch Kupchak, replacing him with Magic and Rob Palenka, has been been trying to make the franchise the way she wanted to be, the way she thinks it should be run. Not necessarily just trying to do it with what was left over from when her dad owned the team. So you talk about uh, you hear about you know, people talk about the culture of the team, the locker rooms, and all that starts uh-huh. from the top. It starts from the relationship that the owner has with basketball operations down to the coach yep. who they choose. And while winning can temporarily cure all of that, how important is that now in the league where with the length of contracts and what people can sign for now, it seems that playing with someone is more important is not as important as it used to be. It's now playing for someone. So mm-hmm. – I mean, basically saying that LeBron's decision to come to the Lakers probably, you could argue, then did start about eight, uh, 18 months ago when she fired her brother and hired Magic Johnson and Rob Palenka. Yeah, I, I really think it. I think that was huge because the Lakers, it became clear, we're going nowhere with Jim Buss and Mitch Kupchak. 
ruining the show. And it, it, I think Jeannie tried to avoid having to do that because this is what her dad had set up. Like she didn't want to go against her father's wishes, but it became very obvious that not only was it not working, but it wasn't going to work because she was not involved at all. Like if mm-hmm. you're the main owner of the team, if you're the controlling owner, and you've got people who are theoretically working for you, right? She ran the business and the team. She was in the board of governors meeting. But when it came time for big basketball decisions, they weren't involving her at all. And uh-huh. that's just not a way for an organization to operate. It's not a healthy organization. And I remember talking, you know, to Adam Silver about this in, in sort of a general sense. And, um, you know, when it, it, not just necessarily about the Lakers, but it's not a general sense in the in the league. And, you know, Adam's point is you can, you can tell pretty quickly how franchises are run. It's like you have, um, you know, it's like when you go to a hotel, you can tell pretty quickly just walk into the lobby and the way that the front desk treats you. Like, mm-hmm. are you in a nice hotel? Is this thing run well? Yes. Well, pretty quickly, right? Um, I think around the league, like, you know, people – didn't know who to call with the Lakers, who was really in charge, who was making the decisions. Last year, I wrote a story kind of after she fired her brother and made this transition. And one of the things I always remember that stuck out to me was, you know, Byron Scott, who had been the coach at the time, uh, said he had a good relationship with Jeannie Buss before he joined the Lakers as a coach. Mm-hmm. But then once he was there, he, like, never talked to her. And I said, why is that? And he goes, well, I, I felt like I was not supposed to, like I was being disloyal. Jenna Nitz if I went and told Jeannie anything or talked to Jeannie and I, they, they would get the wrong idea. Huh. And I go, are you serious? Like you literally didn't talk to her? <laughs> and he was like, yeah, I just, I, you know, I just, did they ever, I was like, did they ever tell you that? And he was like, no, but we all kind of knew. And I was like, Oof. like, if you don't have a level of trust between if there's a separation and the, and the, the trust level is that poor, how are you running a franchise, let alone, even getting in a room trying to pitch a free agent like LeBron James, like, hey, come here and deal with our dysfunction. Uh, not many people are signing up for that. Yeah, and there's all the whispers back. I mean, everyone yeah. talks, everyone knows. And, well, as you pointed out before at the beginning, LeBron made this decision on vacation. And then we've seen LeBron James, the husband and father, is something that is pretty important to him. And uh-huh. like other legends we've seen in sports, like recently, like Love Him or Hate Him, but Tom Brady has been pretty vocal recently about identifying that not only their family is important, yeah. and the trappings of their career has provided their family with some pretty awesome, you know, comfort, support, and opportunities. They still owe them something more. So when you hear about uh, Bronny, LeBron James Jr., when you hear about him approaching uh-huh. high school age and his uh, wife's desire to be in Southern California, like how much of this decision do you feel was probably a lot for them for what they've actually. Oh, I think a lot of it was, I, you know, there's two things I found, you know, about LeBron and sort of where his head is at. And again, I'm going to, I'm going to leave him to explain himself when he's darn well ready. Right. But in terms mm-hmm. of people, when I talk to them about LeBron and sort of where his mind is, I, I think the family stuff is a huge consideration for him. They they bought this house in L.A., the second house, and they've spent the last six months kind of turning it into a dream house. Now, mm-hmm. it's an off-season house, but that's a very big departure from when they, you know, both of, both LeBron and his wife are from, from Cleveland, from the greater Cleveland area, right, Akron mm-hmm. or Cleveland, and, and they have family there. So something's changed, right? Like, if mm-hmm. you're making your off-season home in Los Angeles, that's that's different than making your off-season home 
where your family is. And that's a real big, that's a huge change from the last, the last time when he came back to Cleveland, where he was coming home, his off season home was in Akron, but there's been a shift over the last four years. And it's not to say that he outgrew Cleveland or whatever it is, but he's really like it out here in Los Angeles. And, and, you know, there's a great program out here there where Bronny could play basketball. It's called Sierra Canyon. Yeah. Um, I remember when that story came out, I, you know, I, I live five minutes away from Sierra Canyon. So it's sort of mm-hmm. this new public, uh, this new private school has become this like boss program and a lot of different, a lot of different sports. And, um, they, you know, Dr. I think, uh, Will Smith's kids go there and yeah. uh, you know, a bunch of other famous people's kids go there. And, and, you know, a couple people told me that, yeah, I think it's true. I think he's coming. To, I think he's coming to the school. Um, but the school knows enough about protecting celebrities' kids to mm-hmm. to shut that story down. And I was like, that's kind of why people come to LA, right? Like they yeah. sort of know how to protect celebrities. They sort of know how to treat celebrities. They don't they don't go crazy over them here. It's like you're just a normal person. Um, and it's not, you know. And so that's that's number one. And then the the other side of this too is people talk about oh he's. He's going to, you know, his business interests out here is movies and so look, he can do movies from anywhere. Mm-hmm. What the, what Los Angeles represents for him and not just Los Angeles, but the Laker brand is one of the biggest platforms in sports and in the mm-hmm. world. Yes. And LeBron has an incredible mind for social activism, for being a citizen of the world, yes. for what he has to say on, on issues more very far outside of basketball, right? One of his legacies in Cleveland will be his school, his the the the, pro, the program he did with his schools and with kids there and his foundation. And I, I think he sees this as you know he's not chasing Michael anymore. I don't think he's ever going to. He's not going to get to six rings, right, or seven rings. He's only got three, and he's in his mid thirties. But I, yeah. the, the the comp for him is either Magic Johnson or Muhammad Ali. Mm-hmm. These these are the types of guys that he is wanting to be in the same conversation with in terms of legacy. And so what you do is you find the biggest platform out there. Cleveland was a pretty big platform because of he's from there and because of what he could bring you a championship there sure. when no one else could. So was LA and there's really nothing like LA when you're winning. And I, you mentioned Michael Jordan, the six rings. It just, is it and how he wants to be more like a Muhammad Ali or a magic Johnson is, was, since there hasn't been many since Magic Johnson, how important do you think that the possibility of being what he wants to be was sort of illustrated by what Kobe Bryant's been able to do? More of a contemporary yeah. who he played against. He was like, listen, I'm out of this for like two years and I've won an Academy Award and like I'm uh-huh. building my own empire. So that's sort I, of bridge. I think that's huge. Yeah. I mean, I think, look, and I'll, I'll, I can say this very simply is like there's people who understand how to treat stars, mm-hmm. right? There's people out here who don't see like, you know, when, when LeBron does something like he's not going to get labeled a diva out here. This is just how you treat stars. Mm-hmm. This is how, you know, and the, I mean, like, trust me, <laughs> Los Angeles, this is normal behavior. Right? Right. Like this is not, nobody out here even flinches. And I think the Lakers have sort of made that a core part of their brand. A couple of years ago when they signed Kobe to that extension that they just got roundly panned for right two years mm-hmm. 48 million and, yeah. and oh my gosh like, you know you're sinking the team right like you know this endless things that were written i remember talking to jim bus about it and he said you know one of the things that we do is we take care of our stars like this is part of our brand like we were never going to let kobe be in some 
contract in negotiation where we're lowballing him, we're making him feel unappreciated, especially yeah. when he had that Achilles injury. Like mm-hmm. we know how to take care of our foundational players because they're that important to our franchise. I mean, go back to when Jerry Buss gave Magic Johnson an ownership stake when he retired. Right? Remember, he, he owned a piece of the team. Yeah. That's how important yeah. Magic was to the formation of the Lakers, and so. This is part of the core Laker brand, which is if you are an all-time great, you you are treated differently in L.A. And it's you're not made to feel bad about it. That that's just how it should be. It is. It's interesting because I mean, even with other, in, they seem to be almost alone in that. Because if you look at a comparable uh-huh. sport, a, a team, a different sport, there's that famous dinner meeting that Brian Cashman had, the GM of the Yankees, with uh-huh. Derek Jeter with his last contract. Where Jeter's yeah. like, well, I want the same money, at least maybe a little more. And basically he went all sabermetrics on him and basically said, like, you're bad at defense. So no, you're old. Yeah. And so that, I mean, there was that, I mean, he wasn't going to go anywhere else. But yeah. the fact that that was made public is something that is clear, is like, is more the standard where it seems what the Lakers are willing to do is very much the exception. Oh, I mean, they took a lot of heat for it, and it probably did hold them back, right? But I think sure. from their perspective, they, they most likely weren't winning all that much at that point anyway. Somebody else was going to have to take the money that they would have given, the extra money they you know they could have saved if they didn't give Kobe all that much. Um, and in terms of brand value, in terms of what their fans expected, and put and quite frankly, putting on a good show, mm-hmm. right? Like Kobe Bryant's last couple of years were not the best basketball of his career by any means. No, nope. they were a great show. People still show. Right? I mean, it, it was something to talk about. It was something to put butts in the seats and have mm-hmm. the celebrity the celebrities there sitting courtside. Like, like the Lakers get that. And sometimes you, you know, there is there is a different level of of showmanship in Los Angeles that you have to understand. And it's like hard to explain it to anyone. But I, you know, I, I this is why I've had a good relationship with the Lakers and the Bus family because they don't they don't sweat it when people write about all the like mm-hmm. crazy things that happen. They don't get nervous. Like a lot of times, like the, the, the teams will try to shut things down. They don't want their dirty laundry out there. The Lakers, mm-hmm. they just kind of see it as cost doing business. I remember saying to Jeannie Buss once, like, doesn't it bother you that like people are talking about your relationship with Phil Jackson on sports talk radio and like analyzing your romantic life, you know? And she's like, well, you know, one thing my dad always told me was that the 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 Lakers are the daily soap opera in Los Angeles, and if people are talking about you day to day, they're also they're tuning in. Mm-hmm. You're 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 they're you're getting attention, and you know it doesn't. So on one level, you're you're giving up some of your privacy, you're giving up some of your you know um, your your just daily you know like most people like to keep you know relationship stuff and romantic yeah, stuff a line. out of the headlines right but i think like there's an acceptance that like this is just kind of what comes with being the glamour franchise like you have you're going to be in the tabloids sure. so we're gonna, you know sports talk radio is the tabloids and of sports right you gotta kind of roll with it you don't don't fight the paparazzi you don't shove the camera away from them. you don't really run towards it but you just need to understand this is a cost of being in the position you are well you give up your privacy but you absolutely don't give up your relevancy that's right so lebron is coming to a team that clearly isn't going to win the team they're not going to win next year but after you've won a couple titles uh several titles with two different teams as the centerpiece 
is patience something you have or is it the point in your career it's just the opposite or does none of it even matter because it's like it's still going to it's sort of like what in your piece how Luke Walton kind of closes it out with like listen whatever happens like we're going to be on sports center every night and everyone's going to be talking about what we're doing yeah i think luke luke is you know he there's a quote i didn't use and it's like one of those like it's left on the cutting room floor but it it was a good one he was like this is like growing up in the walton household right? <laughs> like i'm just <laughs> chaos you know um you know i think like the people who succeed in la are the people who they're not they're not thrown by any of the circus like they not only like can deal with the circus they sort of have fun with it I'm mm-hmm. not saying they embrace it. I'm not saying they 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 want to be. Yeah, they don't encourage know, it. Yeah, they don't encourage it, but they but they have fun with it. It doesn't it doesn't mm-hmm. bother them. Um, those are the people who succeed here. And lost in I think in New York it's a little different. I think you have to embrace it. Mm-hmm. I don't think you succeed in spite of it. I think you have to be somebody who thrives off that kind of manic New York tabloid energy, right? Yep. Um, and there there have been people who have that who have that in them, but it's 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 a little different between New York and LA. Um, but I think with LeBron in terms of winning and in terms of how it's going to be, like, he, he knows. It's been, like, since he was 15. Mm-hmm. Like, wherever he goes, it's going to be a show. And he looks at this roster, and it's, it's not perfect from a basketball standpoint. There was really no perfect fit. Even even Philly, which would have been a better fit for him in terms of talent. Like, I don't know who was going to have the ball, Ben Simmons or him. But right. Very similar players. It wasn't – that wasn't perfect either. Um, but I think he sees this roster, and I think – the meeting with Magic and the subsequent interactions have made him feel good enough about the idea that we're doing this together. Like we're, we, I'm not saying LeBron's a GM, but but there's a sense that those two basketball minds, those two basketball players, they're really talking about this roster day in and day out, and there's a level of trust between them in terms of, hey, let's let's try this, let's try that, let's try this, let's try that. Whereas I don't think he's ever had a partnership like that with anyone. Yeah. I mean, he didn't have it the first time in Cleveland. Uh, he and Riley, uh, you know, Riley kept a sort of level above. You know, mm-hmm. There was there was dialogue, but there certainly wasn't like back and forth the way that he imagined. Yeah, this is not a democracy. It, yeah, I, I really think he feels that. And then, you know, with LeBron, you have to always realize that everything he does is strategic. And so nowadays in modern journalism, what do we do? We go on their Instagram stories, see what they're posting all the time. The last three to four days, his Instagram stories have been of him working out. Nice. It's, he's not saying anything, but he's back to posting LeBron workout videos in go. early July, which is him signaling, look, this may not be me going to a great basketball situation, ready made to win. We're not favored to be a champion, but I'm in here working. I'm in here yeah. grinding. This isn't me just like throwing up my hand saying, I'm going to kick it in LA for four years. We're, we're, we intend to win. And this is, like LeBron messaging and reading between LeBron's words has become like follow him on Instagram, see the messaging he's putting out there. And then, you know, of course, when you ask him about it in September, he'll probably backtrack and, you know, claim like we're just voyeuristic, but there's, you don't post stuff on social media with your 39 million Instagram followers. (laughs) You you have an agenda. Oh, oh, you guys saw that? Oh, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> when you talk about when you were talking about the beginning about you know like LeBron does like there are some basic tenets that get you in the door with LeBron and he dictates uh-huh. what sort of happens and all that. Now that meeting that Magic had with him, which was actually sort of like not some the thing I, I forgot I always forget about it wasn't it's it wasn't necessarily as clandestine as it could be because you know you guys are in Los Angeles so LeBron so he went 
and basically met with LeBron at 9 p.m. in Los Angeles. But uh, had that leaked out, instead of it was like some secret meeting at a hotel, had that leaked out ahead of time or during, how much would that have would that have ever been a deal breaker for his camp? Do you think was like that trust like that really yeah. important? I, I mean. I, I personally don't think so. I think that it would have been fine. I think he was coming regardless. Mm-hmm. But uh, they felt that way. You know, I mean, I can tell you as a reporter that night, it was very weird to not be able to even confirm that there had been contact made. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, I knew they were going to try to talk to him. I knew that during the day, there's a certain period of time where teams are allowed to set calls or set meetings um, in advance of the free agent more, the free agency uh, that begins at 9 o'clock Pacific. Um, so I knew there was plans of that, but I, I never heard when or who or how or whatever. And I remember checking back that night and the whole next day. So you guys talked to LeBron, right? Like people talked to him and like, nobody oh, would confirm LeBron it. Knew. It was, yeah. yeah. Right. Like, like, uh, did you talk to Rich Paul? Did you talk to LeBron? Are you having a meeting? Cause like clearly Cleveland did, you know, that leaked out. Kobe Altman talked yep. to LeBron that leaked out. And the next day, Philadelphia was having a meeting and that leaked out. So why, why couldn't we confirm that the Lakers either even called him? And it was, it was very weird that like no one would confirm it. And part of that was they, you know, I I sort of subsequently found out that they had this idea that if, if they blew it, right. If they, Mm -hmm. if it leaked, if, if he, they, they could blow their chances. Like this was sort of a loyalty test. Can we, can you guys keep this a secret? And, you know, I don't know what the consequences would have been, but I know they were afraid, <laughs> you know, to the point where they, they didn't even tell Luke Walton that Magic Johnson was going to meet with LeBron. He didn't find out till the next morning right? that, what, that he yeah. had gone. It was just, he was, Magic was supposed to be there with everyone else making calls, and he sort of wasn't there. And it was like, oh, where's Magic? We're all making calls. Where's Magic? But Luke has, you know, learned enough over the years to just, okay, if he's not here, then I'm going to stay in my lane and do my coach <laughs> thing. Do you, uh, you know, Coach Ty Lue and Kobe Allman, they mention how much, you know, they feel that LeBron, mm-hmm. what he's accomplished, and he clearly has nothing but love for um, Ohio still, like with the schools and the yeah. commitments. I mean, it's amazing if you, if it, it isn't the most glamorous journey on the web for people, but if you go look at the foundation web presence yeah. for a lot of the big athletes, LeBron James Family Foundation, what they do on an annual basis is remarkable and underreported. Yeah. What he gives back, yeah. I think, is so impressive. So, but considering that anchor that they still have there, and uh-huh. including his wife, who went to the same high school as him, do you do you envision a post playing career for LeBron, like maybe running the Cavs someday, like taking that angle of the Magic Johnson route, or is this move like Maverick Carter and I are starting an empire? And we'll be whoever we are, but that's we'll be that right here. Yeah, you know, I don't know. He's talked about wanting to own a team, mm-hmm. um, but I don't know when that would happen. Like, I don't know if that's a right after I get done. I mean, because then you could end up like Derek Jeter, who, ooh, this doesn't seem like a great idea so far, right? Yeah. Um, this is very different. You know, right? I mean, it's a very different thing. I, I don't know if he's, you know, maybe he wants a break from basketball when he's done. I don't know. He's still got a few mm-hmm. years left, right? So oh, sure. you don't know. I would have never predicted Kobe would do what he's doing. I mean, that that really surprised me that this is where Kobe's post-playing career ended up. Um, so, you know, I don't know that they have it all scripted out like that. It's hard to predict guys like LeBron because he's been in the public eye 
and not just the public eye, but like weight of the world on his shoulders since he was 15. Sure. And sometimes you get to a point where you're just like, I kind of just want the time to myself. Yeah. You know, like it's kind of want people to go away. Like, I, you know, I don't know. I mean, sometimes there's people who really need that attention. Like it's like oxygen for them. You know, I don't, I don't get that vibe from LeBron. I think he has learned to live with it because it's just his reality, but I don't think he necessarily craves it. Um, so we'll see. We'll see how he, he goes over the next four years but um, or, or, or longer even. But I, I know he's talked about wanting to own a team. It just I, I think he'll always have roots in Cleveland, and I think he'll always have roots in Los Angeles. And I think he has a much bigger horizon than anyone even can think about because he sees his platform in the way that guys like Bono see his yeah. platform, right? right. Like this is you, when you're trying to do comparisons, it's almost limiting to only compare him to sports players, to athletes. Oh, agreed. Like, especially, especially those that come of age in a digital world where like the, like you mm-hmm. said with Instagram, I mean, even on, uh, in the height of his relevance, um, you know, being in front of the cameras, and the microphones, Muhammad Ali couldn't reach the audience that LeBron could yeah. instantly just from his own, you know, like there was always a filter and a delivery system yeah. with, with all previous stars of his ilk and in comparison. But now it's like his ability to speak directly to people through digital communication is just, I mean, it makes, yeah. that's what that's not just his abilities and his vision, but that's just technology makes his new, makes his long game. So un, just unprecedented because it doesn't exist. Yeah, it's long game, but also he has his own production company and they produce, you know, the Survivor's Remorse on, on and some other like game show that he does. I mean, like he has his own production company. It's not like he's just doing little Instagram videos. No, like, right, exactly. You know, right. Anything that you can think of that it would be, you know, a way of him communicating or doing something that's outside the general bounds of sports. Like he's already taken it to the next level. Like that's what he's been doing for the last eight years. Like, and really, he's just been trying to harness it. In the in the ways that he sees fit, like I mean, you know, look, he got involved in the presidential election last time around, campaigning mm-hmm. for Hillary Clinton. I mean, this is a guy who, like, he's not he's not afraid of stepping outside of his lane, right? You know, like, he, he's never going to say he's, dribble yeah. stuff was so funny because he's. I mean, LeBron hasn't been shutting up and dribbling for a long time. No, and he's never going to say Republicans wear sneakers too. No, even yeah. though that wasn't allegedly <laughs> said. But but as far as him running a team someday, it would be great to hear have on his uh, his calendar a meeting. With free agent LeBron James Jr. and his agent uh, Savannah James. <laughs> yeah, well, he he said that one of his dreams as a father is to play on the same basketball court as his son one day in the NBA. Well, his son's going into eighth grade, I think. Mm-hmm. It's about five years away. Yeah, one if, and uh, done. If the one and done rule goes away, he, here we go. Like that could be about five years away. Like his last year in the league could, could be Bronny's first. So I'm going to put you out in a limb. Uh-huh. Final question. How long until yeah. LeBron holds up the trophy in the Staples Center? I'm going to say three years. Three um, years. I, and I think it'll only happen once if it happens. Mm-hmm. Because I think the Warriors probably are winning one more mm-hmm. uh, next year. I think and after next year is when things get dicey for them financially, and it's going to be really hard to keep that whole team together. Yep. Um, everyone wants max money. It's really hard to do that. If there's one franchise I think probably could or should, it would be the Warriors because they're moving into the new building after that. Mm-hmm. So you don't want to start the move to the new building by having <laughs> lost 
a championship team. So they're going to try to keep it together, but it's going to be hard. And that team's going to start aging. Um, But the next year, I don't know. We'll we'll, we'll see that the first year in that building, uh, it'll be hard for them to, it'll be hard for them to stay all together. And that's when I think you can see some erosion. Plus I think that's when teams like Boston and Philly might get good. They're still, both of those teams are still probably one year away from being really ready to win. Mm -hmm. Um, But if there's a time that LeBron can sneak in there, it would be in a year or two. And, it would be before he himself gets too old and, and starts to diminish. So he's he's thirty three. He'll be thirty four. So I, I, I give him I give him this year, next year, maybe a year after that before you start to see the real decline or the the real phase of the decline. Um, hopefully, I'm wrong. I hope he's great for all four years. I hope yep. he's, he's, been, he's just been incredible the last few years to watch. Um, but like I think they're, they're, the, the window's not all that that large right like especially as you're heading into your mid-30s no. so uh, maybe it's maybe it's once maybe it's twice um but either way i, I think the best way to, to sum this all up is like lebron james is in los angeles like the best player like luke walton closed this piece by saying like the best player in the nba is laker it hasn't it's been a long time and 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 i say a long time i don't mean for other suffering franchises, but in Laker franchise years, yes. five years of being in the lottery is an eternity. Well, LeBron James is someone I'm sure <laughs> on the court, off the court, in the movies, in the boardrooms, whatever, we're going to be talking about him for the rest of our lives. Yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, that's, that's you know, part of covering the Lakers is, is having this endless debate of who's on the Mount Rushmore. Mm-hmm. And how many franchises have it where there's an actual debate? Because there's so many great players who have been through the do- those doors. Agreed. Well, Ramona, thank you so much again for your time. Thanks, Mike. Remember to subscribe to Double Truck Stories Podcast on the ESPN app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks again, and we'll be back soon with more Double Truck Stories Podcasts.